Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. This episode features one of three guests who were part of my weekly hour-long NPR show broadcast over the air every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island where it has broadcast continuously for over 15 years. This show is about dogs, cats, and other creatures who share the planet with us. Please check out my other Pet Talk podcasts at tracyhotchnerpets.com. This show would not be possible without the longtime support of Waruva, the pet food company founded and privately run by David Foreman, who named it after his rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva is a quirky name for a company with whimsical names for the dozens of different cans and pouches of cat food they make. But what sets them apart is how serious David is about high-quality nutrition. They were the first pet food company to use human edible ingredients and process them in the same facilities that make human food, remaining privately owned and run, accountable only to their own high standards. This show is also made possible with the generous support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Bruce Elsie a feline-only veterinarian. He personally created many styles of litter to make sure that even the fussiest cats would not have out-of-litter box problems, the number one reason people abandon their kitties. Dr. Elsie also created his own brand of cat food called Clean Protein, the first dry cat food I can recommend because it's based on the protein found in a cat's natural prey. Dr. Elsie's is also the founding and continuing sponsor of my New York Cat Film Festival of which I am the founder and director along with the annual New York Dog Film Festival, which premiere in New York City every October and then travel the USA and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. Go to dogfilmfestival.com and catfilmfestival.com to find out when we'll be where. It's so wonderful to be able to share a lot of information and advice with my wonderful co-host on Exotic Pets, Dr. Doug Mater. He talked a few weeks ago about how to get into vet school because it is kind of a mysterious path for some for some people and those who are on it, it may seem mysterious even while you're on it. Doug, I think it would be great if we could talk about what happens in vet school. What do you do? How do you do it? How long does it take? That kind of thing. And then also, I think so many people start out in life, who, a lot of people who become vets start out in life young, 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 wanting to be vets. I would say the vast majority of animal lovers all think at some point they wanted to. But many of you carry it through. And I wonder what happens when you get to vet school and find out it's really difficult and you worry, can you cope? Can you meet the challenge? I, I think there must be a lot of shaky ground for people once they're in. So first, let's talk about what's involved. You you get in. Let's say you've been clever, fortunate, and hardworking enough to get in. What happens? Is it like human medical school or, or different? Not that I know how human medical school is either, by the way. Oh, well, once again, Tracy, thanks so much for having me join you. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, these are all really important topics. And everybody asks a lot, you know, you know, everybody always says, I want to be a veterinarian. I want to grow up to yes. be a veterinarian. And, you know, what do I have to do? I, I don't think a lot of people realize the amount of work that goes into becoming a veterinarian. They think that you just kind of wiggle your nose like they wish, <laughs> and all of a sudden, boom, I'm working with puppies and kittens, yes, and life is great. Yes, and isn't it fun? Um, 
it's you know it is bad. It's awesome. I've been doing this almost forty years, and if I had to start all over again tomorrow, like Groundhog Day, yeah. I would do the exact same thing. Nice. Um, and yeah, it is an incredible challenge. It's an incredible amount of work, and you know you can also kind of like any job, right? Whether it's a plumber, a podcast host, anything else, you can make it what you want to make it by how much work you want to put into it. So you can be a very kind of run of the mill, just coast along veterinarian, or you can be an extremely aggressive, state-of-the-art, you know, push-the-envelope veterinarian. So a lot of the pressures that you bring on, you may bring on yourself. And then other people have different personalities where maybe they're not a state-of-the-art, push-the-envelope veterinarian and they can't handle what's thrown at them in vet school because they cram a lot of information in four years. And so in many ways, there's a lot of parallels between veterinary school and medical school and that essentially it's a four-year program in this country. In other countries, like in Europe, it's five years. And some of the one of the Caribbean schools, they actually, believe it or not, cram the entire thing into three years, which Whoa. I just can't even imagine. Round the clock, three, you know, uh, 24-7, 365 for three years. That's got to be incredibly intense. Um, but anyway, let's focus on the United States. So once you, if you reach that holy grail and you get into veterinary school, it's a four-year program. And it's there are 32 schools in the country, and they're all a little bit different, have a little different ways of approaching teaching. But essentially, the goal is to form you into a capable, qualified, educated, compassionate, caring, on and on and on veterinarian that's going to promote the human-animal bond um, if you go into private practice. Um, but, you know, usually the first year, second year, there's kind of a standard protocol, a standard scaffold of classes that you take. And then when you start approaching your third and fourth year, most of the schools have what's called track programs. So they allow you to kind of select a topic that you're interested in. So, for instance, when I went to veterinary school, I selected what was called a zoo track. So for my electives, uh, I ended up taking classes on giraffes and oh my uh, God. You know, polar bears and things That's like so that. Cool. Whereas people that were just going to work in private practice, they're never going to see a giraffe their no. entire career. So they don't need to take their time learning those classes. So they would focus more on the dogs and the cats. Um, and again, most of the schools in, in the country, as you get into your deeper into the education, they have track programs where you can kind of select different uh, elective courses. Now, the, the nice thing is about veterinary school is that once you graduate, um, you can actually go out and hang up a shingle. You can graduate on a Friday, and if you want to start classes on a, or start work on a Monday, as long as you pass your national and state boards, uh, you're good to go. You can go out and hang up your shingle, and you're a full licensed veterinarian. Um, humans in human medical school, of course, you're required to do an internship, and then you can stop there, or if you want to, you can go on and do a residency. And then a fellowship, and yeah. you know it gets goes on and on and on. And you know, I know some MD friends of mine. You know, their higher education is eight to ten to twelve years beyond veterinary school. So in veterinary school, it's basically four years in this country. If you want to, you can do an extra year as an internship. And I always, I always have to laugh because you know they teach you so much material in that four years. Then you graduate and you realize, oh my God, I don't know anything. Right, you, you haven't know? done it yet. I, yeah, I just you get wanna... out in the real world and you go. Oh wow, my gosh! But here's here's the so thing that that's why a lot of people want to go back and do a, a year internship and kind of what that is is a transition zone where you're actually a licensed practicing doctor, but you're still under the tutelage of somebody with substantial amount of more education or experience 
Uh, it might be in a private specialty practice. It might be at a university setting. Uh, but that's just an extra year of training just to give you that confidence. And then for those veterinarians that decide they want to specialize, and we're seeing more of that nowadays, after you do your one-year internship, you can go on and do a two- to three-year residency in any of a number of different specialties, like let's say ophthalmology, cardiology, oncology, uh, surgery, you know, you name it. Uh, and then you get a specialty degree after that. So potentially you could be out in four years practicing veterinary medicine or if you really want to, you can pursue it and you can do an extra year internship and then do an extra two to three year residency. And then on top of that, you're going to have the ones who really are academically oriented and they may tack on a, um, a master's degree or even a PhD, especially if they want to go into research. It's, it's, it's crazy because one of the things that I, I love about vets when they – there's sort of a joke in the veterinary field comparing veterinarians and human doctors. It's like – yeah, it's so easy for those human doctors. They only have one species to deal with. And we on the receiving end don't stop to think just because you know lots about rabbits as a doctor. I mean, it's totally different with a cat or a dog or a, even a bird that comes into a regular practice. There's, Or if people go into large animal as regular vets, if you will, not the sub-sub-specialized I mean, cows, horses, llamas, sheep, there's so many different issues with digestion, reproduction, bone repair, I don't know, neurological problems. To take all that in in four years is kind of astounding, and you haven't really had any field work yet. But what? how do the people who say, you know, I really want to do, I don't know, neurology, which is pretty complex, how do they make a living? You spent four years in college— then you spent four years in veterinary school. Now you've got like scary student debt. How can someone afford to go on and do internships and fellowships? Well, the, the government really helps out in many ways. If Generally, if you have some student loans, if you continue with advanced training, most of these loans are deferred. Now, the interest is not deferred, but the actual principal payments are deferred. So rather than having to start paying back your student loan as soon as you graduate, if you go into a one-year internship, which internships, do, like you like you alluded to, don't pay well, you know they're they're, they're not a living wage, right? They're well, they are, but compared Barely. to what you could make in in private practice, it's about a third of what you would make in the real world. Um, but the trade-off, of course, is that you're continually getting trained, right? And so, how much you you know how much is knowledge worth? That that extra year of right. training increases the value of your stock. And then when you yeah. finish your internship, now you're, you can demand even a higher salary than you would if you just walked right out of school. And, and have so, less competition for a job because now you have these extra skills laid on top. Yep, absolutely. I mean, having, again, increasing the value of your stock makes a big difference when you're job hunting. Um, anyway, the, um, the, the student loans are generally deferred if you're doing advanced education. Not the interest, but the, the loan itself is. So that does help tremendously. And then they also give you a, a little bit of a grace period once you graduate that, you know, most of the student loans, there are so many different places where you can get them, but the majority of the student loans, 
give you a little bit of a grace period to get your feet on the ground before you have to start paying back. So that helps. All right. I want to talk about the emotional aspect of of fulfilling your life's dream of becoming a vet. I don't think people who become human doctors or dentists or ophthalmologists necessarily dreamed that when they were in third, seventh, and twelfth grade. They probably wanted to be, I don't know, a you know professional ball player of some kind. But veterinarians have had this. Most everybody that I've ever talked to have had this in their heart forever. So they get to vet school, and I imagine there must be a reality check, like, oh, this is harder than I thought. Oh, maybe I'm not going to be good at this. Oh, my God, I'm not comfortable doing X, some sort of procedure. I'm not saying that blood and guts would bother somebody knowing they're going into medicine, but it might. Or the way that, I don't know, lab animals get treated. Maybe there's an emotional component that's a shock. We know that there's an organization that has sprung up for practicing veterinarians as well as vet technicians and vet students called Not One More Vet because of an extremely high suicide rate in the veterinary field. And in your amazing book, The Vet at Noah's Ark, you do have a chapter about a suicide. And so you've seen close up the kind of pressure that becoming a vet as well as being a vet, but we're talking about becoming one at a student level, can can create for somebody. Can we talk a little bit about how people seek help? Not one more vet is there, but I don't know if it's for students. But certainly, I think that a student could feel everybody else is smarter than me. Everybody else is going to be better at this than me. If it's something you've had in your heart forever, and now you're in the real world doing it, I could be wrong, but I get a sense that could happen. And how do we support those people? How do those people look for support? Well, I, you, know, you hit on a lot of important topics here, and vet school in general is very competitive. I mean, it's extremely hard to get in. Then once you get in, they tell you on the first day, okay, guys, you're all here. Congratulations. Chill out. You know, enjoy the ride. You know, there's no more competition. You're, you made it. You're here. And that's not true. Right. Um, exactly. It's, inc- it's incredibly competitive, <laughs> especially for those vet students that want to go on and get internships and get residencies. I mean, you're thinking about that from the first day that right. you matriculate into veterinary school, you know, because if you want the best internship, if you want the best residency, you've got to have the top grades. So if you don't care and you're happy going into private practice and being a general practitioner, yeah, your pressures are going to be a lot less than somebody who goes, man, I need to get that Angel Memorial internship so that I can then go on to the uh, animal medical center and get right. the residency and surgery that I want. Right. You know, extremely competitive. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> and I have to laugh too, because I remember them telling us that my very first day of veterinary school. And then when you get your first report card at the end of the first semester, they put right on your report card, your class rank, you are number Ouch. 121 out of 122. You know, it's like, Oh yeah, no competition here. Wow. Um, yeah. So they definitely rub it in. Um, but no, there's the schools have gotten so much better about sensitivity and being aware, uh, work-life balance, and yes. not overburdening the students. And they have support systems. Um, nice. And there's definitely, you know, the the universities and the veterinary schools specifically definitely have counseling set up now, so that that doesn't happen. I think back, you know, I I lost a classmate. Um, when I was in vet school and that was way back when, and it was a problem back then and it's even worse now. And gosh, I've literally lost several classmates and really close friends to suicide. Um, 
and it's it's hard to watch. And and you know, sadly, that happens in all the professions. But it always seems more personal when you know the people. Um, but you know, everybody should be aware of the you know the Congress passed a law um, a couple of years back uh, that supports emotional health. And there's now you know everybody's aware of the nine one one emergency line. There's now a nine eight eight suicide and crisis prevention hotline that's available nationwide. And anybody, veterinary student, dental student, plumber, podcaster, anybody who needs help, and there's nothing wrong with needing help, nothing wrong with asking for help. Um, if you want to remain anonymous, reach out to the nine eight eight number, and they can help you. And you know you don't have to go it alone. There's there's it, it, life can be tough enough. You you turn on the news channels, you pick up the newspapers, and you're surrounded by bad news. Yes. Um, sometimes people think <clears throat> it's too much. Yes. And you can get help. And so, you know, look into the options that you have if you're a vet student with the vet school. Talk to your counselors. Talk to your peers. It always helps to have a good peer group. Um, and then remember that, you know, 988 is there for everybody, and there's no charge for that, and nobody's going to judge you. I think it's really important that we bring this up. I mean, we don't want to make this seem like a downer or too scary, but it's a reality. And I think it's important that we all call it out, not, oh, great, you're a vet now, enjoy. Yeah, you're a vet now, enjoy, or you're on your path to becoming a vet, and you will enjoy it. But there's also going to be rough patches, and they are rougher for veterinarians than other professions, than other professional occupations, as it turns out. And I, I just think it's really important that people going into the profession are aware that it's okay to have bad, sad, scary feelings and to do whatever is offered to you as a way to support yourself. And I really appreciate – and your book has so much compassion in it, Doug, with the interns and, and the, the people you had working with you. The Vet at Noah's Ark is a wonderful way to look at the arc of the professional career of, an, of a really wonderful doctor – Surrounded by all kinds of people, both the clients and the cohorts in the clinic. So, again, as always, I recommend it so highly. And I thank you again, Doug, for being a wonderful mentor to a lot of people, a great colleague to so many veterinarians. You're there for anybody who asks for your advice, your help, even your presence. And you're a great, a great example, a shining example of what a veterinarian can become and be as a man and as a doctor. So thank you for being that for so many people. Uh, you're very kind, Tracy. It's, uh, it's an honor to be a veterinarian. It really is because people trust us and we get to be a part of their family in happy times and sad times. And um, I, again, I, I would never choose any other profession. If I had to do it all over again, I'd do exactly the same thing. That's wonderful. So anybody with questions or concerns about being a veterinarian, becoming one, curiosity, you can write to me at Tracy Hotchner, Tracy at TracyHotchnerPets.com, and Doug and I will talk on the air or with you privately about your concerns. Thanks again for listening. Hi, right, God bless. I hope you enjoyed the show. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible, and I hope you'll try their products because they support my mission to entertain you with valuable information and advice. This show is supported by Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, where they create holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. Earth Animal makes a dazzling array of healing products for dogs and cats, as well as the innovative dog chew, No Hide, 
and the hybrid dry food, Wisdom, which is sometimes all that my picky Weimaraner, Maisie, will eat. The show is also brought to you in part by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two dedicated women who take human edible, ethically sourced ingredients to gently cook dog food that is then frozen in pouches and shipped right to your door. They founded and run their own company and answer to their own high standards without interference from venture capital investors. My dogs love it every single day. 